Welcome to Polly Wanna Cracker. My name is Tim Baker and I'm here with John Bolton of the Australian Liberty Alliance, a Senate, a Senate candidate uh, going into this upcoming election. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I apologise I'm a little under the weather and I'll do my best here, but you'll be doing most of the talking anyway. So um, just I, I, admittedly, I don't know uh, a lot about the Australian Liberty, Liberty Alliance. It's a fairly new party, is that correct? Yes, it was launched back in October last year and what is most popularly known about it is that here Wilders uh, came over and, and launched the party in Perth. Right, okay. So tell us a bit more about the party and um, how it came about and, and what it is that you guys stand for. Well, the party is actually not against anything. It's often portrayed in a negative way by mainstream media and the socialist left. We're actually for Australia, for Australian values, for mainstream Australia. We say mainstream Australians have, have had enough of being told to respect things that don't deserve respect, uh, to respect things that are simply silly or violent. Um, mainstream Australia is fed up of being told that they must be politically correct and accept things that they don't want to accept that are not Australian. Well, so we stand for Australian values. My own personal perspective is to say the Australian Constitution, our civil and criminal law, those people in Australia who uh, abide to our Constitution and our laws are welcome here. We're not an anti-immigration party. In fact, we have an immigration policy. Uh, and so we stand up for Australian values and we say the two main uh, parties have lost touch with the ordinary electorate in Australia. And that's where we say the space is for us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, it, in my research, it's clear that there has been some controversy that has followed it around. In, in terms of that, when you say that you're for Australia and you're not anti-immigration, like why is the party coming in for that type of criticism or, or that type of perspective from those that perhaps don't know? Yeah, well, if you start from my perspective, and I've been a human rightsist, I'm a barrister and a solicitor, and I've been a lawyer in family law and uh, done with domestic violence. I've represented Aboriginal bodies, and I've also negotiated on behalf of Aboriginal people with mining companies and so forth. And so for 40 years or so, I've been involved in that sort of human rights field. And one of the things that I must say I still get quite distressed about is how nasty ordinary humans can be to other other humans. I despair over that. And if people like me don't stand up and say that we despair about the ordinary human values, then who else is going to do it? So when you look into things like I've made submissions to the the, uh, Royal Commission into Children's Rights in in, in South Australia, for instance, about what's happening to little girls. And when when you read about uh, the the Royal Commission into what was going on in the APY lands, for instance, and you start to develop policies about what you think should be going on... and strengthen and broaden that out about young girls in Australia being forced into marriage at nine through 10, 11, 12 years old, 250 of them in in Melbourne in one year alone, according to a a particular women's and youth group, uh, where you have two separate clinics now set up to deal with female genital mutilation, one in Sydney and one in Melbourne. There's only one when I started, and now there are two. So uh, I'm a pro-human rights person. I say that Australian values, for instance, we start off with what we take to be uh, common sense that in Australia, Australian women, 
uh, are the same as Australian men. We take, we take that as an unassailable value here, don't we? And yet, his uh, foot to here, uh, they make the women sit at the back, the men at the front, and when they were taken to the Equal Opportunities Commission and lost, it was found to be sexist, they now on their website, they sell tickets. They sell men's tickets and they sell women's tickets. So why is it that that's being allowed in Australia when our starting position is that men and women are equal? So I say, um, if you take my position uh, that I brought into the party, I stand up for these things that are just basic human rights. And as a matter of fact, a particular group self-identifies as being against Australian democracy. They've, the two Islamic groups have made submissions to our federal Senate inquiry into immigration that Sharia should be a parallel system with Australian law in Australia, provided always that where they differ, Sharia dominates. Now that's being said. So my starting position is not to oppose Sharia. My starting to position is to stand up for Australian uh, constitution, human and civil law, uh, civil and criminal law, the human rights that 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 comes with that, and therefore when people want to change that, I find myself in a position of appearing to be against it, but I'm actually standing up for Australia. Okay, so why do you think some people come uh, at that and, and are quite aggressive towards that stance? It depends at, at what depth uh, you want to go. For instance, it's, some of it is simply not understandable. After I developed this notion of, of lobbying in various ways, I found that I wasn't doing a great deal to influence the dialogue. So I became involved in, uh, in, in Reclaim Australia and a number of other rallies. Now, a number of people in the party think that that is a little bit too, uh, too much of an in-your-face way to have gone. But uh, when I uh, dress in my three-piece suit and I appear on t Today Tonight, for instance, uh, and Channel Seven and Channel Nine, promoting the first Reclaim rally in Adelaide, that gets home to ordinary people that what we're saying is stand up for Australia. And ordinary, civilised people like me, been you know in Australia, uh, working for forty years, twenty years in the police force, twenty years as a lawyer, wearing a piece, a three-piece suit, standing up and saying ordinary things with sense. We had fifteen hundred people uh, on the steps of Parliament House in Adelaide, probably one of the best attended reclaim rallies in Australia. And as I was standing up there and saying things like homosexuals should not have their hands tied behind their back and thrown off buildings to their death, I'm getting a sign from the opponents in my face saying you're a homophobic. How does that work? And then when I'm talking about in Australia, we say that our women and our men are equal. I have a sign that goes up in my face saying I'm a misogynist or a sexist. So when you ask me why people are painting what I stand for in that outrageously wrong way, sometimes there's just no understanding it unless you say they're anarchists and they supporting the breakdown of our society and they don't care how it occurs and therefore when people stand up for Australian standards, they just want to break you down. And I think that's probably the best and most accurate representation. Okay. When people come at you like that, what is your mechanism for, for dealing with things like that? How do you approach those situations? Well, there's a number of different approaches. I write a lot. I lobby every level of government. I uh, lobby most politicians and I write to most of the mainstream media. So that's one way. Another way to get the message out was to do these uh, rallies and to work the media before and after. And sometimes when you're working the media, you can see the lights go on, especially when you're, when you're being interviewed, say, by a young, young woman. And 
and you talk about the female clitorectomies and you know the fact that there are 150 girls and women a week attending each of these clinics to have reversals to genital mutilation. Now, not all of that's occurred in Australia, obviously. We've had a wave of immigration where women have had it done overseas and are coming here and looking for Australian medical help. But the best information I have shows that there are, in fact, three Australian uh, girls a week being born into families where they're identified at risk. This is not a right-wing issue. Uh, Tanya Plibersek, current opposition leader and former Minister of Health in the Gillard government, Julia Gillard, when she was Prime Minister, and Tanya Plibersek, uh, Minister of Health, obviously women and obviously left wing, they were promoting a national criminal code to deal with genital mutilation in Australia. And so, you know, that's when I'm talking to young female reporters about how women are being forced into the back of the back of the hall at, at ordinary Islamic rallies and even if they go into a mosque. And this is the biggest threat to women's rights in Australia that's ever been. And I can't understand why uh, women are, are not standing up and targeting it. Domestic violence is another thing. Sharia law, for instance, it puts down rules as to when the misses can be hit. Now, there's a, I've been lobbying about domestic violence for decades, I would say. And so it is something that I've studied and been a part of. I've acted for women who've been subject to it. I've acted to, for men as well who've been a part of the process. And I've lobbied every level, level of government. And, it's and I've spoken about it recently. I've spoken about it at my service club. I, I, I raise it each time there's an issue. Uh, I raised it spontaneously without even being a speaking spot when, you know, uh, when Luke Batty was killed by his husband, by the father, by the cricket bat. This is something that's close to most Australian men, contrary to popular belief. You know, women and children are the safest in their home environment with a, with a happily married couple. Women, women and children are at their safest, contrary to a lot of propaganda. But the point is that we have rules against it, even though one or two women a week are being killed uh, by their former or current domestic partners. It's against our law. We have processes in place. We vilify the perpetrators. Sharia doesn't. Sharia has rules that says it's okay to hit the missus and chastise her in their own home. I'm against that. Tell me why that's a right-wing issue. It's not. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Yeah, I, I, it's, um, it's not something that you hear talked about well, I don't feel like you're here talked about that much. I get what um, where people are coming from in terms of allowing you know cultures to um, thrive and 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 be their own things and allow them to have that room. But I don't personally agree with yeah, some of that violent stuff that's that's in that culture either. So. Let me put let me uh, pick you up uh, on another point which I always make because it's true. If you look at the evidence that was given to the Canadian Senate inquiry into multicultural uh, uh, multiculturalism and immigration and I I take Canada to be a very similar demographic to to Australia. And the evidence that was given there by a Muslim Tariq Fatah was that something like 90% of Muslims in Canada uh, don't even go to a mosque. 90% of them are there to escape the tyranny that is Islam and Islamic state type rule and regulation. And there are many countries where Islam runs a country, whole states and, and whole countries. So if you transpose that to Australia, and I have, I've analysed the figures, right, you know, we, the figures are squishy. Nobody knows whether there's 1.2, 1.5, 1.6 or 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. This is a broad and diverse 
diverse community, you cannot say all Muslims this, all Muslims that. Simply wrong. And it's certainly wrong to label all Australian Muslims with the tar of the brush of Hizbut Tahir and the aggressive, I call them aggressive, conquistadore Islamic jihadis. You know, that, that's the sort of strongest label that I use for the, these people who either use violent aggression or very strong aggressive uh, policies in order to Islamify our country. So we need to divide those. In fact, I became first in, interested in the Islam issue. I claim the first Islam issue uh, meet, public meeting in the country. I called, this, is, uh, this was motivated in me by uh, women uh, who were clearly of Muslim in appearance on public transport who were being uh, harassed and bullied for being of Muslim appearance. I oppose that, I oppose it then, I oppose it now, I'm strongly against it. But it, it was a part of the dialogue, and we're talking two and a half to three years ago, and I arranged a meeting uh, between uh, the uh, president of the South Australian Islamic Association, who came with a little, uh, and a, a understandably, reluctance. He said, I'm not going to come if it's going to be Muslim bashing. I said, no, it's not. What I'm trying to do is build the dialogue. And I also uh, lobbied for each uh, South Australian politician who might attend such a meeting as well. And the only person that turned up was Senator Nick Xenophon, with whom I had a good relationship at the time. He's since uh, decided to eschew what I do. And we can come back to that if you like. But the point is, we had a, a meeting to which we invi invited the public. I called it Calm Down Day with the specific purpose of pointing out to Australians that the 90% plus, I think, in Australia, I call them Aussie Muslims, have been here for as long as most of Australia has. We all know that the GAN train, for instance, is named after the Afghans. I've played eight ball when I, with Afghan people in the up at Lee Creek in the old Lee Creek. You know, these people, have, the first mosque in Australia was at Maree, for goodness sake. And these ordinary Aussie Muslims have never been a problem to us, and we haven't been a problem to them. They're part of the furniture. But, uh, but we need to make a clear distinction between those people and those who are anti-democracy, anti-constitution, who fail to determine a, a human rights in accordance with how we do it. You know, there are some just abhorrent things, and I res refuse to expect, uh, respect them, and I say it's perfectly proper to ridicule and vilify what they say. And I say that's protected by the Australian Constitution. The Federal Court of Australia handed down a decision back in November in which it was confirmed that in political discourse in Australia, uh, in insult and offence is, is par for the course. So I don't rail against people who insult me, and I guess a long way of coming round to your question is how do I answer it. In radio shows and interviews when people say you're a bigot, I say, please tell me one thing it is that you say that I've said that could be interpreted in that way. If I'm called a racist, well, obviously Islam's not a race. Please tell me one thing that I've ever said that you could interpret as racist. You call me xenophobic? How can you say, just show me something that you say that I've said that fears foreigners or fears Islam unreasonably for that matter? All right. And you, you said we could come back to the, the Nick Xenophon thing there. Uh, so please enlighten me what happened there. Yeah, well, Senator Xenophon, uh, I, say, and I've, uh, I say that he's been in politics for 17 years now. He's going for 23 years in politics. Um, there are pictures of him vilifying uh, Australian politicians as being on the gravy train. I say that he's been there now for 17 years. I say he's uh, lost the plot. I think I say he's central pop-up politician 
populist politician. I say that going for 23 years shows that he's part of the problem and not part of the solution anymore. I think he is trivial. I think he's the first place that the media go to when they want a commentary that's fairly superficial about something. Point to me something where he succeeded. The Brighton Caravan Park people, for instance, those who he encouraged and represented to oppose what Brighton Council uh, were doing, ended up worse off. The submarines, for instance, he can't claim any credit for that at all. He, in fact, you can virtually say when he stands up for something, it's going to fail. Holden's at Elizabeth. Submarines, you know, really that's a commercial decision made by uh, the federal politicians. There's more to it than that, though, because Xenophon came along to this meeting, which I've talked about, the calm down day, and um, you know, he and I were working on a number of issues. To, to his credit, he took me over to Canberra because I was working on an amendment to the uh, the Commonwealth Act that deals with regulation of Aboriginal corporations. I say that there's a problem with large minorities miss, missing out on an equitable distribution of, for instance, mining royalties, uh, sometimes up to 40%. And I've drawn up the, uh, the amendments to the Act that I say should, could entrench equitable fairness for these large minority groups. So he was assisting me uh, in, in that, and I was assisting him in push, pushing that forward. So we had a pretty good relationship. And so he came along to this meeting, and, and I don't think it's revealing a confidence for me to say, he said, John, I'm not going to come along if it is you know, just an excuse either for bashing Muslims or something. I said, no, it's to build the dialogue. We can see where it's going. We're talking about before Martin's Place, before Parramatta murders, where we could see what was happening in Europe, and the plan and the uh, the plan uh, of Islamists is clearly there. It's followed in every uh, European civilization country that they decide to uh, to colonize and take over as they doing in Australia. So uh, he came along to that and then uh, I saw him uh, building uh, what he might call a good relationship with the uh, Mufti. Uh, I don't call this person the Grand Mufti of Australia. He, uh, Australia is 98% not Islamic so he's certainly not the Mufti of Australia and he's not even the Mufti of most Muslims in Australia. He represents a small minority group, this man who doesn't even speak English after being here for 18 years because he's following the doctrine of Muhammad, which is don't learn the language of the enemy. And so when I see Senator Xenophon being friends with him, I think Senator Xenophon is either ignorant of what's going on or is not looking at it in depth enough or is being used by what Islamists call a useful idiot. Then when I see Xenophon turning up at Toowoomba, at the Toowoomba Mosque, launching his local ex-team candidate, I call them the, the team of expendables because they're not going to win in most of these seats. They're just up there to assist Senator Nick get more votes for his next six years. So when I see him up there in the mosque with, uh, with the, his ex-team person seeking out actually Islamist votes, and I say I distinguish between ordinary Australians, Aussie Muslims, most of whom don't even go to a mosque, those conservatives who do go to a mosque, and those more extreme conservatives who are jihadis. So there's this whole sliding scale there. And I say it behoves Senator Xenophon to actually look behind these groups that he's asking for support. He should be looking behind the doctrines of what's going on in this mosque. And, you know, I'm not saying that the Toowoomba Mosque is going to be supplying guns to uh, a jihadi warrior, as in Parramatta, which we've seen occur. That's on the track record. The 171 mosques that were closed down in, in France, every one of them had a cache of tools, AK-47s, and bomb-making equipment. So that does occur in mosques. So anybody who's promoting it needs to look behind it. Now, my part of the Australian Liberty Alliance uh, is not anti-immigration and we're not anti-Muslim. We are 
against people who want to impose their Sharia on us and who want to do it by violence. We actually have a document called the Islamic uh, Understanding Document. And it's got a whole series of things that we say Islamic groups in Australia ought to be signing up to. They ought to be signing up to saying they're not teaching that women are second class to men. They ought to be signing up to saying they're not encouraging boys at their Islamic schools that girls are second class and it's going to be okay to hit them when, when you marry them. They ought to, we must oppose those sorts of teachings in Australia and I say that Senator Xenophon is overlooking that and he's going for the vote and he has a duty as a leader of our state to be looking behind the sort of people that he's trying to garner support from. Um, it, it, considering that uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is you know Islam and, and Muslims and, and those sorts of things, it, what else does the party um, focus on? Because uh, it, it could be forgiven for thinking that perhaps there's a bit more of a preoccupation with that rather than you know some of the other politics going on in Australia. So what else does the uh, the party stand for? Well, we have a policy with respect to defence. For instance, we say the uh, GDP uh, spending on defence should go up to two percent. We support uh, military. Uh, um, history. We, su we su support military culture within the military. When you see, uh, for instance, uh, I think it was the um, Commissioner for Equal Opportunities saying that people in the hierarchy or in the military ought to be selected from non-fighting personnel now in order to enable the equal number of women and men uh, are in the hierarchy of the army. Now that seems to me to be uh, an outrageous set of political uh, Political engineering. You know, if you're in the army and you want to go over the top, you want to be going over the top being led by somebody who's been there before. So we have a policy on the army, and of course Bernard Gaynor is a uh, is a former soldier. He spent time in Afghan and and so forth, and he's a military intelligence officer. Specifically concentrating on uh, on the Islamic and Muslim, Muslim issues, so he's he's very good at that. So he's developed the policy on that. Uh, we clearly have an equal opportunity uh, uh, um, policy. Uh, we have uh, uh, policies with respect to the climate, with respect to uh, economics, uh, with respect to foreign affairs. Uh, all, there's a whole range of uh, twenty something different written published policies. And one of the things I find extraordinary is when the party was launched in Western. Australia, uh, there was a local radio station uh, which called in a, an, a person who purported to be an expert. She was a professor at the Western Australian University. She said that she had followed the career of the uh, of the party, uh, the party's leader in particular, Debbie Robinson, who's also Western Australian, through the Q Society, which in my view intellectualised these issues. And she said that uh, on radio, this is a single issue party. Now, the party manifesto had been on the website and available for a long time. Now, this person either is not an expert or she's simply lying. What do you feel is some of the the biggest obstacles to uh, gaining votes for this party? And, and how do you guys feel about going to what could be, it was probably going to be a double dissolution election? Does that work in your favour? The uh, I suppose it's trite now talking about the double dissolution, but clearly uh, we normally have a half Senate election, which means in South Australia, every three years for the federal government, as opposed to every four years for the state government, every three years, half those Senate spots turn up. Uh, that means there's uh, only six seats turn up. That means in South Australia, to get a quota over the line on first preferences, you've got to get about 148,000 votes. If you have 12 seats coming up, it doesn't quite go down to half because you divide, for a quota, you divide by the number of seats plus one. So it works out to about 78,000 or something like that. Now, 
Um, the, so the first 11 seats, if there's a double dissolution, will fill up more or less by either getting first preference quota or getting over the line by a pref preference sharing. For instance, the two major parties will put their five or six candidates up. You put a number one on top of their column and you'll be effectively ele electing all five of them in, f in the first five preferences. Say, same for Labor. With us, we say vote one above the line. We'll have two candidates, two Senate candidates. We'll have our logo above the line. The Australian Electoral Commission is advertising vote one to six above the line in, in six box. You can, of course, do more. Uh, and it is a valid vote if you just do one. This is what people like Bob Day are concerned about and why he's challenging uh, the act that's changed, uh, change how you vote. Because in New South Wales, where they changed it for vote one above the line where it's valid, a lot of people uh, are quite lazy and they just do put the one and that means their vote is exhausted very quickly. That's what Bob Day's concerned about and that's why he's challenging it. For us, though, we're not a micro party. We're not like the sh hunters and shooters. We're not like the uh, the reason why David Lehenholm, for instance, uh, is worried because his uh, so-called liberal Democrat party was uh, at the extreme left of the ballot paper and the lazy voters just saw liberal, tick that. And so uh, the good commentators say that he got home on that. And so uh, he's unlikely to get that same donkey vote this time round. And so we're not like a micro party. We're going to be above the line. We're going to have our logo. Uh, my job is to make it easy for our electors to understand where where they vote. And most people, I've stood polling booths. I don't know whether you have, but most people, sorry, most is too strong. Many people don't even know that there are two elections going on that day. You know, there's a lower house election. In fact, South Australia has more senators than it has lower house members. You know, we only have 11 seats here in South Australia in the lower house, and we have 12 senators. So we have a greater influence uh, than the eastern states per population. It's most uh, most exemplified by Tasmania, for instance. Jackie Lambie, to get a quota, only needs 50,000 votes. Our candidate, uh, Kiralee Smith in New South Wales, needs 500,000 votes. That's in a half-senate election. So if you look at that proportionally, for New South Wales, they should have, you know, not 12 uh, senators. If they have uh, senators based on the same proportion of vote as Tasmania, they should have 120 senators from New South Wales. Um, and so that's why people like Paul Keating calls the Senate uh, unrepresentative swill, because they're not, they're not elected in proportion to the number of, of people. So in South Australia, what it means is uh, the first six will definitely need quotas, then, and, and they'll get six-year terms. And so in order to get things back into kilter for a half-Senate election, those who come first six will get six years, those who come second six get only three years. To get that 11th position, it's quite possible a candidate will get home with only 3.5 plus of a primary vote and make it up because the first 11 need quota and then to fill the final position, it's who got top and, you know, and so forth. It's a bit of a almost impossible to explain, but I understand less than 4% can get you home. So uh, our statistics are that something like 66 to 78% of the Australian population is fed up with Islam, is concerned about the risk to it. And that's why I'm reasonably happy that that's uh, what people say the party's about. Because when we, uh, one of our policies is small government, uh, less money being paid on the bureaucracy, uh, reducing the amount of cost of government. Now, virtually 
virtually every party says that, but we stand for it and we say, for instance, that we should be stabilising the terms of government. Wouldn't that be a great idea with what we're seeing going on with will there be a double dissolution? You know, we're only two and a half years into a, a three-year term, which is short enough in itself for a federal government. How does the federal government put in long-term uh, policies that are not just populist if it's only got three years and can be disrupted after two, two and a half? We say, and it's our policy, the federal government should have four-year terms and it should be stabilised. If you're going to destabilise it by resigning partway through in order to get one of your cronies to come into your safe seat, then you should have to pay for that by-election. You know, we say really stabilise the government. People are electing who they're electing and they're entitled to see them fill in their term. It's one of the other things I'm concerned about. Xenophon, it's public knowledge in the interviews, he's not very well. He's standing now for a six-year term. I think he should be asked whether he's going to be staying there for that six-year term or whether he's developing other people to come in and take over and people are voting for something that they're not going to be getting for the next six years. Mm, so you think that he could be on his way out? And that's I, how he's... I think he is. He's been in there for 17 years now. You know, he's going for another six, which will take it to 23 years. He can hardly claim that he's not a career politician. You know, one of the reasons he probably doesn't stand up against uh, negative gearing for real estate, for instance, is he's got three three investment properties that he's got ne uh, negative geared. Now, if this is a man who's not on the gravy train after 17 years, you show me someone who is not a career politician. 23 years, you've got to be admitting you're a career politician and I do wonder from the publicity about his health whether he'll be bowing out halfway through that term for instance. Okay that's an interesting yeah it's an interesting take um, just talk a little bit more about the party uh, would you say by that the way one of the reasons I attack Xenophon is because when he uh, when he started um, courting let's call it the Mufti and saying what a great bloke he was I thought well I'll let that go um, because he had, uh, he had sent me a message to say that what I was doing was repugnant. Okay? Now, I say that he formed that view without listening to what I was actually saying. And I, I hope that your listeners will have heard what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm pro-Aussie Muslim. We're not against immigration. I'm pro-Australian civil and criminal law. Only those who self-identify as saying they want to breach it, and this has occurred, they've made submissions to the federal government that Sharia should dominate. These are the people who I speak out against. So I was distressed that Senator Xenophon, after having spent so much time with him, uh, judged me on what the media was saying about me instead of what I was actually saying. So, you know, and, and I let that go. But then when he came up making friends with the Mufti, a guy who doesn't speak English, I let that go too because I thought I really don't want to be responding to something that might just be a bit personal. But then when I saw the photographs of him actually launching his campaign inside the mosque at Toowoomba, I thought this is fair go now. This, this, this guy is uh, bearing consciousness in order to get votes from a community which are, they're going to be asking for payback in due course. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, so would you say that the party aligns kind of with uh, the conservative side of the Liberal Party or like, is there, or is it just something completely different? Like, Because some might throw you guys in the same, in the same thing as Cory Bernardi, for instance. Uh, yeah, I know. look, I understand that and I will answer it. And I'm, if I may, I'll answer it in a come to it. I say that I'm not an extremist. I say the people who give a gun to a 15-year-old 
in a mosque, they're extremists. I say that people who uh, say that women are second-class citizens, that sort of thing's ex extremist. I'm middle of the road. Um, I say that little girls have rights. I say that you know the uh, the inquiry into APY lands where young girls there in the APY lands, for instance, are now take it for granted that they're going to be raped or molested sexually, and there's nothing that they can do about it. Every time someone does it to them, there's nothing that they can do. And for uh, for five years now, uh, since the reports have come out, nothing's been done about it. There are vacant positions up there for child welfare workers, which are simply not being filled. Okay, so I stand for those sorts of middle of Australian uh, positions. I say there's nothing extreme about what I do. My conservative Liberal Party friends have always thought that I'm quite left of Chairman Mao, and my Labor Party friends think I'm, a, a, you know, quite a, a, a right-wing person. And that's simply not true at all. I'm middle of the road, issue-based, where depending what the issues are. And I think if you examine the Australian Liberty Alliance, the fairest way to look at them is it is a middle of the road, moderately conservative party, uh, more better aligned with the liberal side of politics than the certainly the left-wing extremist socialists who stand up and howl me down and call me a sexist when I'm standing up for women's rights. Um, so I think that's a fair position to put us in. We certainly say, uh, with respect to immigrants, if you come here to our, uh, our country, we stand for integration and you need to fit into our way of life, not the other way around. So we, we just stand up for what we say ordinary Australians say are our values. Okay. Uh, we've obviously talked a lot about um, the issues and, and the party and everything. So just before we go, just give us a little bit more info about about who you are and, and what are, what's your background and what's your... I mean, you've touched on your background a little bit, but what, just who are you, John? <laughs> I'm a person who sometimes wonders why I bother uh, lobbying uh, with respect to politics. You know, I accept uh, many of the arguments such as who's a terrorist? You know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. I accept that. I, I accept that there are people on both sides in the conflicts in the Middle East right now who both think uh, that they're on the side of right. I mean, uh, Yemen, for instance, is 98.8% uh, Islam, half a Shia and half a uh, Sunni, not half and half ones. But they take it in turns to blow up each other's mosques and they, they each think the other ones are terrorists. I mean, in France, during the uh, Nazi occupation, for instance, most of us of Western European origin would describe the French resistance as freedom fighters, even though the occupying forces would call them as terrorists. But when I see a human being put into an iron bar cage with the video started and petrol being poured over him and be, being set light purely for the purpose of violent propaganda, that's terrorism in anybody's language. I abhor that. It, I... I I find it difficult to understand how one human could do it to another human. And I go back to people like Christopher Hitchens, who says things like, look, good people do good things and bad people do bad things, but ordinary good people can be made to do really evil things if you add an ideology such as Islam. So I go to bed at night and I think there's nothing I can do about what's going on in Yemen, nothing I can do about what's going on in the Middle East. But I'm buggered if I'm going to 
get little girls be clitorectomized on the kitchen table in, in Sydney and Melbourne, and that I wake up at night wondering how I can best stop that sort of thing. So that's what keeps me going. Sometimes when I feel like giving up, I think if people like me, a sort of a middle-aged, white, Western person with you know a reasonable amount of intelligence, a reasonable amount of education, a couple of degrees, if people like me don't stand up and say, this is wrong, and I'm going to take the flag, and I'm going to be called a racist, and I'm going to be called a xenophobic and a bigot, but I'm standing up for these people that can't stand up. You imagine if you're a nine-year-old girl, and there's only one prosecution in Australia for underage marriage, and it was a 12-year-old girl. She told her dad, this is against the law in Australia. I don't want to get married. I want to finish school. I want to finish my education. I have equal rights in Australia. Her dad said, no, that is nonsense. That is silly. We follow Sharia. The reports are that girls like this uh, uh, will be killed if they failed to uh, follow their father's uh, instructions. There's one woman in, who reports to the Women's Legal Centre in Melbourne that she's fearful that the girl who's going to be forced into marriage will run away because she's killed. They interview the brother. He says, yes, I'll do it. Now, I oppose that going on in Australia, and I believe I can do something about it. That's why I say the Australian Liberty Alliance, we stand up for these things that the mainstreamers simply will not stand up and say because they're too scared of losing votes, being attacked by these ridiculous attacks. Nobody can call what i am just told you as a right-wing or left-wing issue. It's a human rights issue, and that's what keeps me going. I'm a barrister, a solicitor, a public notary, spent 20 years in the police force, and uh, regardless of what people say, being in the police force is about helping society. It's about being there on call. When people don't know what else to do, they call the police. And one of the best and most gratifying experiences in, in the police is when you turn up to some scene, some incident, and some parent says to their child, it's all right now, the police are here. That gives you a good feeling. And as a barrister and a solicitor, um, I do believe in the law. I've done a lot of uh, free and near free uh, legal aid work. I've represented Aboriginal people. I still go and do things on spec when I think just is not occurring. I do believe in our legal system. I think we should be standing up for it. And if people want to slag off at me for it, so be it. Okay, so where can people go to find out more about the Australian Liberty Alliance? Well, there's there's a number of things. If they want to find out more about my background, I have a blog site in which I write ex quite extensively about things before I uh, shoot from the hip. For instance, I wrote three and a half to four and a half thousand word words on genital mutilation in Australia and, and what I think uh, the reasons why I come to a view. That's on my blog site, as is Aboriginal equity, as is the right to bear firearms, for instance, and the right to defend yourself in, the, in my own own home. Uh, I got one of those articles published and three days later I had a random firearm check on my firearms by the police. Yeah, obviously that's random three days after I have a letter published about it. So that's where they can check on me. I also have run a Facebook page Australian Law First I say because that's my test. Anybody who wants to comply with Australian Law in Australia is welcome. And then there's the uh, Liberty Alliance uh, web page it's got all our core policies there. Anybody who wants to read the, in detail the policies and most people don't you know, I've stood booths for, for years now for different people, and I defy you, if you walk up to anybody and said, please uh, tell me uh, one of the uh, manifestors of the party that you're voting for. 
you'd be hit with deathly silence. Most people only know the piece of the paper that's red or blue. Uh, so, so we have these policies. We are getting out there. We're being staffed by the media. I've run two press conferences. We had the look. We had a sellout launch in Adelaide. We had standing room only. Had to bring in extra seats. Press didn't come. I had ran a press conference with respect to ooh, uh, banning face masks uh, outside of the uh, state admin centre. Not a single press person turned up. I ran a press thing for the media last Friday with, uh, to, to come and meet me. Nobody turns up. So they're practising a code of silence, as they did with uh, Donald Trump, I say. Uh, but in due course, uh, so our, in due course, our message will get out there because it is what people want to hear. There's a vacuum for it. And the next step, of course, will be the ridicule. Um, and I'll be called all those names. Uh, and I'm going to take it for the reasons that I've I've said today. So why do you think the mainstream media hasn't been showing up? Well, that's a short question with a long, long answer. The mainstream media these days is interested in 20-second blocks, and I actually say that they were the downfall of the Abbott, uh, the Abbott prime ministership, for instance. You know, Abbott was there only for three years. Like, he's a sensible politician. Uh, whether or not you uh, agree with everything he did or not, that's not my point. Uh, three years, he's going to be doing the difficult things over the first year to 18 months, and he would have had to take that flak in order to start laying out the policy leading up to election sort of in the last nine to 12 months. And he was never given that chance. He was vilified and attacked in 20-second media bites. Most of the media in Australia are left-wing, I say. They, for some reason, that means they've chosen to label me and my issues a right-wing, which means they say, starve him. All right. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you for your time today and uh, your honesty and, your, you know, and, and sitting down with us. So I appreciate you being here and uh, good luck with the campaign. Yeah, I appreciate the time. And there are many media interviews around the country that I have managed to get, get going despite of the, uh, the silence. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing, and including Polly Wanacracker. Yeah. All right. No worries. Thank you. Polly <laughs>